This is the Plymouth Plantation Podcast. I'm your host, Hillary Goodnow. Today we're on location, nestled along Town Brook in downtown Plymouth, two and a half miles from Plymouth Plantation's main museum campus. And we're here in our newest living history exhibit, the Plymouth Grist Mill, a fully operable grain mill where millers Kim Van Warmer and Matt Tavares and their staff harness the power of water to grind organic corn into meal and nasamp, which is the Wampanoag word for grits while talking with museum visitors about the roles of science, technology, engineering, environmentalism in the world of 17th century and 21st century Plymouth. So it's a cool, dark room down here in the gear room of the Plymouth Grist Mill, and Town Brook is rushing only a few feet below the foundation, which is keeping the room quite cool, Uh, and it's December, so it's very seasonal in here right now. Um, And in front of me are two enormous wooden gears connected to the water wheel outside. And while the gears are silent, when they're engaged and the mill is working, Kim and Matt, I'm sure it's hard to hear yourself think down here. I think it is, but not maybe as much as you might think. I think I tend to notice vibration more, I think, than the sound. You can carry on a conversation. You do have to raise your voice a little bit, Um, but not as it's not deafening. No, it's... I kind of liken it to the sound of uh, an old wooden ship when you're downstairs, the, the creaking of and cracking of the, the wooden gears against each other, and then kind of a little bit of the moaning of the spindle as it's going down uh, or going up through the, uh, the ceiling there to the runner stone. Yeah, and there's not one sound in every location. You know, the water wheel is kind of making this train sound, kind of, you know, kind of chugging along as the water <laughs> hits the buckets. And then upstairs, you can hear, you can literally hear the corn cracking. So it's more of a kind of a sound, and then you have kind of the clacking of the gears and the moaning. I think the most noticeable thing when you come to the to the mill is that when on days that we're grinding is that when you're walking up, you can actually feel that stone going around in the in the floorboards of the decking, even outside. Um, when you come inside, the entire place is it, it is it's it's alive like a beast. There are different sounds in different areas, and the and the building is vibrating. <laughs> And sound is really important, too, because it's a diagnostic tool. You know, we've, we're familiar enough with this mill after having run it for um, four years now that we know what it should sound like, and when things sound a little bit different, you know, we can be in the middle of talking to visitors, and then all of a sudden I'll see Matt's ears kind of prick up and him turn around, and I know that he just heard something that he doesn't, that's a little bit out of the ordinary. So um, as well as, you know, watching and feeling the grain come out and smelling the grain, um, the sound is really important. Uh, to the best of your knowledge, what was it like to be inside a working 17th century grist mill? I think probably um, a little bit different than ours. I mean, there were different sanitation standards, so we try to keep things really clean and free of dust. We try to clean things up so that we don't attract any critters that, <laughs> that we don't want. Um, I think a 17th century mill was a very dusty kind of place, probably a lot darker than ours. Um, what do you probably, think? Probably a little bit smaller in size yeah. as well when you're inside. Um, it, it, it's where we're recreation, um, we're, we're a little bit larger probably than what you would have typically seen um, at um, a 17th century mill. And probably a little bit stinky. I mean, cold in the <laughs> winter, like as we're, we're feeling now, um, cold and damp. But in the summer, hot and damp, and the animal grease that was used to, to grease the, to lubricate the gears... Um, was known to get pretty funky in the summertime. (laughs) 
Uh, and the technology that we're sitting here with uh, and that visitors can see when they come visit the gristmill feels very primitive to, from our modern perspectives. Uh, was it considered primitive for the time? You know, I, it was fairly common for the time. We have the water wheel outside, which is about 14 feet in diameter, um, that connects with a wooden shaft through to the inside of the downstairs of the mill, um, which has a large face gear, which on the face of the gear, there are teeth that are um, protruding out, and they run in the direction of a clock. So if you can imagine that in your mind's eye. As those teeth go around, they're going to turn a smaller gear called the lantern gear or the stone nut the birdcage gear because it kind of looks like a birdcage, but it's also wooden as well. Um, as it's turning that gear, there's an iron spindle that'll go up through the floor, and that's what's going to ultimately turn our runner stone. But these gears are all wooden, so there's constant re reproduction um, uh, maintenance that needs to be done on these gears. I think that you would find, if you even go into 18th century mills today, you'll find the same two types of gears and the same technology a whole century later in those types of mills that, you know, maybe they've expanded upon that a little bit. Maybe the rounds have a metal sleeve over them. Um, there was add-ons to the technology, much like computers get better and faster. You want to keep improving your, your product to make it the next best thing. But I think what you see here um, in our 17th century mill is pretty close as far as the gearing goes um, to what you would have seen. There are a few other things um, in our mill as a reproduction that are slightly different. Yeah, and I think the thing that what I love about working here and talking to people is that a lot of people do come in and they see just sort of this old wooden mill with these big clunky sort of gears. Um, but when we start to describe the science and technology behind it, you know, we're talking torque. We're talking water power. We're talking gear ratios. Um, then I love when people sort of get, you can see they get that little light in their eye like, oh, wait a minute, this is really pretty complex. You know, it's sort of simply complex or complexly simple. I don't know which one. But there's a lot going on. I mean, this is engineering and technology, 17th century style. And cars and clocks and all those things use this same technology today. Can we talk about the grinding process a little bit? I'm curious, where, where do you start? With, I guess with the water, yeah. <laughs> because that's making our power. So yeah. like the water wheel turns, the gears, like Matt was saying, they transform the power. Mm -hmm. You know, the water wheel's turning slowly on a horizontal axis, um, and then we want the stones to turn on a vertical axis, which means they're turning horizontally, so that's what the gears do. So to start the mill, we lift up a sluice gate so we start to divert water into the wheel. The water fills compartments called buckets, and that unbalances the wheel and makes one side heavier. So the water wheel is taking the energy, which is water, and converting it, energy that would flow in a linear fashion, to rotational energy. So that water, uh, that water power travels up and through the spindle and then turns that stone. So then we start to feed corn down through the eye of the stone. Um, we can regulate the flow rate, we can regulate the distance between the stones to determine the texture of the final product. Um, so we turn it on by turning on the water, we start the corn flow, and then we spend about five or ten minutes adjusting. We adjust the speed, we adjust the distance between the stones, we adjust the flow rate, we smell, and we, you know, people may have heard of the phrase, keep your nose to the grindstone. Some people say, we're not sure, um, but some people think that that comes from millers smelling the product or keeping their nose close to the stone 
to make sure that you don't get this hot stone smell, which smells kind of sulfury, which tells you that your stones are too close together or that you need corn, more corn in between them. So it takes a couple of, you know, five, ten minutes or so to get everything adjusted the way that we like. And we're listening to the gears at the same time to make sure everything sounds great. And then once we get it going, um, it's a matter of just monitoring. We're kind of babysitting the system at that point. Have you had to make any technical adjustments to the 17th century technology? Uh, because we are producing 21st century product and it is a 21st century exhibit. So have you had to make any adjustments or um, accommodations? Yeah. Yeah, I think the first thing a lot of people will notice when they come in is that we're all wearing blue gloves <laughs> uh, for sanitation reasons. Um, but we are a certified organic um, facility here, so we're we're processing pr organic product, but we're doing it, like you said, in a 21st century environment and health codes and health standards. Um, one of the things that we do here um, is that we actually clean through our corn as it comes in. Um, our grain comes in from an organic distributor, um, and it comes in clean already, but we'll actually sift through and pull out any imperfections, even with some of the grain, um, the corn grain that's in there, but also sometimes bits of the cob. And we're doing that... Um, you know, it, I think in the 17th century, you're going to kind of put it in with every little thing that's in there. It's going to be fairly clean, but you're not going to be as specific as we are. Um, but then also, as the product comes down uh, through our through our mill, um, it lands into food-safe bins. Um, you know, it comes down through the wooden chute, which is fine. But once it lands in there, we'll put it into food-safe bins, and then we put it into storage bags that go into refrigeration and freezing until we go into processing. Yeah, in my mind, I think one of the biggest differences is um, that cleanliness sort of thing. Um, we take our stone apart. We lift up our runner stone and move it away and clean between the stones, which involves sweeping the cornmeal off and then vacuuming it off and then hitting it with an air compressor and then vacuuming again. And then before we run the mill the next time, we're sanitizing um, um, steam cleaning and sanitizing mm -hmm. it with a sanitizing solution. Um, the pilgrims probably would have thought that that was just ridiculous because it's so much work. And, you know, it sounds kind of easy to say, oh, we're lifting that top stone off. But what it means is we are lifting a 2,500-pound stone, um, pulling it up off of that spindle that it rests off, rests on, swinging it to the side and tipping it up so that we can clean. You know, they might have done that just a couple of times a year to tune up the surface of their stones, but we're doing it every week because we don't want, if we grind on a Friday and a Saturday and then we're not going to run the mill again until Friday, we don't want old cornmeal sitting in between there. Um, so we spend a whole lot more time um, cleaning stuff, I think, than they did. And I think that, you know, also that also leads into kind of two two reasons for that is that one it's it's downtime and when you're running a mill in the 17th century you're using it for fresh product fresh food for mm -hmm. your for your home you're coming down here to get product for your house yourself um but so you have that downtime period um but also to a certain degree if you're kind of running it six days a week except for the sabbath as that product goes through, you're kind of flushing fresh product through. So you're keeping things moving. So I think to a certain degree, they're kind of true. Um, you know, there's fresh stuff going through there. I'm constantly moving stuff along. Nothing will build up. Um, but that being said, um, we know that sometimes that's not true. So yeah, but it's fun moving the stones too. It's a really cool exhibit and talk about technology and simple machines. I mean, to watch one or two, well, usually two people move a 2,500 pound rock is pretty cool. I mean. These, this gearing system has been used for 2,000 years for a reason. <laughs> it works pretty darn good. I mean, we really 
haven't had to make a lot of adjustments to the technology because it's really efficient. I want to talk about the corn that we grind here at Plymouth Plantation. Um, you said you get it from an organic distributor. Uh, where does it come from and what kind of corn is it? Well, we, get, we have several different kinds. Our dream, and we're working towards that with several local farmers, is we kind of have three um, parameters that we want to hit. We want to be milling locally grown corn. We would love it to be organically grown, and we would love it to be um, these antique heirloom um, varieties of corn that we're very much in danger of losing, and we have lost a ton of them. So those are kind of our three boxes, and we're working with a couple of farmers that have ticked all three of those boxes. So um, there's a farm down in um, uh, Westport, Mass., and they're growing this beautiful corn called a flint corn um, called Floriani Red. And what I love about them, in a, I love a lot of things about them, but it's really cool because we follow the same system in milling corn for them that they did in the 17th century, which means we toll grind. So they bring their corn to us. We keep a small portion of it in payment for grinding the corn, and they take the rest back home again. So we're, we're kind of still following that same economy that they were here in the 17th century. There's a farmer in Western Mass on Lazy Acres Farm in North Hadley, and they're growing a beautiful um, Indian corn for us, another flint corn. And this one is really special because uh, we worked with UMass um, Amherst back in the 1990s, I believe, to develop a corn that looked exactly like the descriptions of corn in the 17th century. So they crossed Narragansett white cap flint corn, which is um, grown still in Rhode Island for Johnny Cake. So that's an eight-row corn. It has eight rows of kernels. And they bred color into that, and they kept saving seed and saving seed year after year until they got exactly, you know, kernels that were straw-colored and olive-colored and bluish and reddish, which is how they were described. So he's growing um, corn, that corn for us, too. So that's really exciting. So those are our local, those are our, like, we just, you know, th those make our hearts sing. <laughs> you know, that's ex they're exactly what we're trying to do. Um, and then one of our mainstay corns comes from upstate New York, from Champlain Valley Milling. It's organic and non-genetically modified, but it's a more modern variety. It's a yellow dent corn. And what's different about the dent corn than some of those heirloom corns you talked about? Um, they are, it's a different kind of corn. You have popcorn is one variety. You have sweet corn. You have flint corn. You have dent corn. Flint corns were around here in the 17th century. That's what the Wampanoag were growing and what the pilgrims were introduced to. Um, it's a harder corn. It has more hard starch. It has higher protein. Um, the dent corns are, they came here a little bit later, um, and they're not, you know, original to this area. Um, they have a lot more soft starch, so they make kind of a, they have a higher proportion of flour when you grind it up, and they have a higher sugar content and less protein. Different flavors, too. The flint corns, I think, have a nice, robust, kind of almost polenta-like flavor. Why do you think corn... Um was so important to these historical communities, to the Wampanoag and the, the New English communities? Because it grew so well. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think for the, for the, for the, the, the pilgrims, I mean, when they, when they come over, the, the wheat's not going to take it. We're in a rocky, acidic soil here in New England, um, and you're kind of in a, in a quandary, and then, you know, you, you don't fully know about corn at that point. Um, you know, you've, you've, heard about it and, and, and maybe maybe seen some of it um, from early explorers bringing corn back, um, but you're not growing it, you're not using it in your everyday life throughout Europe at that point. Mm -hmm. um, so when you come over here and the Wampanoag show, um, 
the the pilgrims how to grow corn and what the different types of products you can get out of it from nasam to to corn um, corn flour and, and corn um, you know corn meal um, you know that's what get, what's the, that's what helps them get through not having wheat coming over on ships constantly um, to be able to be used um, I think that if and you know it's it's one of those things where we talk about that the the Wampanoag and the Pilgrims and and learning to grow corn together, and sometimes I think it gets lost that it's you know it's kind of a nice story of how they came together, but quite honestly, it shows you um, the open heartedness of the Wampanoag to help them get through the, that winter because if it wasn't for this corn that they planted, it would have been a very long um, first few years here um, in Plymouth. Yeah, and I think you know I I can't obviously speak for the Wampanoag people, but I know that it's a very important part of their culture. Um, you know, for the pilgrims, I think it was important economically and for survival. It was a food source. But for Wampanoag people, it's much, much more than that. It was um, a gift to them from the creator. Um, so I, th I think they were very, very different. It was v important to both of them, um, but I think in, in very much in different ways. So let's talk about the, the mill building itself. You've both mentioned that this is a reproduction mill. Um, and we don't really know what John Jenny's original mill looked like, um, but we, we do know a little bit about the Jenny family. Um, can you talk a little bit about them? How did they come to be part of Plymouth Colony? Well, they, they came over like other colonists. They were one of the more well-off families. John Jenny was a brewer in England, so it's kind of, it's a little bit of a surprise, but not a huge surprise that he started a grist mill. Um, brewers frequented mills very often because they had to get their their the grains you know ground somehow for their for brewing um, so they would be familiar with a mill I think John Jenny was kind of an entrepreneur he was like well you know this corn doesn't make very good beer but we really you know our housewives are really getting sick and tired of grinding corn for hours and mortars and pestles and so he's like I know a little bit about mills maybe I'll build one um, but actually even before then there's this kind of little known um, thing that happened where one of the another colonists before John Jenny built this mill in 1632 um, there was a, a man named um, Stephen Dean and he asked the town for permission to build a pounding mill until such time as a grist mill was built so he built what we think is kind of had a waterwork um, we think it was like a mechanized mortar and pestle um, and you see that technology for grinding other things like ores and things like that but not so much for grain so that ran for a couple of years, and then he died. Um, so John Jenny built his grist mill after that. Um, so John Jenny ran it for several years, and then he died and left it to his wife. Um, and then she ran it for quite a while. And we know, uh, fortunately and unfortunately, they show up a lot in the court records. So it's fortunate for us because it tells us all kinds of stuff about their relationship with the community. It's unfortunate for them because they were... Um, it almost seems like people were tattling on them. They would go to the town and say, well, hey, my, I sent my servants to the mill, and they had to wait a long time. Or, um, you know, this corn isn't being ground sufficiently, or my bags keep coming untied. So we know a whole bunch about what kind of went wrong with the mill, but not as much about what went right. You know, you don't get called into court just to say, you know, John and Sarah, just wanted to let you know you're doing a great job. You know, that, that doesn't happen. Does Do these court records tell us a little bit about what expectations were of milling and thus what the milling experience and the sort of consumer experience was like in England or in Holland? Certain aspects of the, the court records they talk about, um, 
bags uh, leaving the mill not being tied tight enough. Um, they talk about um, the 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 grinding devices not being kept clean. So I think and and getting a, a, a inferior product maybe possibly with some mold or that type of idea if you were grinding corn that wasn't probably or any other grain that's not quite dried out enough you're going to you're going to get possibly some mold and you're going to have a lesser product and i think um you know that kind of lets us know what is it kind of lets us know that there's an expectation, but we're also talking about the 17th century. So it's not this expectation of, and you could eat probably off of the stones, but mm -hmm. I think um, you're looking at a, a situation where, you know, we want to be able to get our product home. Uh, tie, the tie the bags tightly, tie mm -hmm. them securely together. Um, but as far as what's going on in mills in 17th century England, I mean, you're still going to have um, mills that are dusty and there's mill fires because they're dirty and clean. So I think the when we see the court records, we see more sanitary things, but it's not to the sanitary level that I think we think about today in, in modern milling if you were to go to a large industrial place right now. And we, we know that there are stereotypes of millers as, as thieving. The thieving miller is a, a trope, I think, from Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Mm -hmm. um, so how did people think about millers in, a, in society? Well, it's interesting because that is so common in England, but that, of all the complaints um, that we see in the court records here, that's never one of them. Um, but I think people have, I think there's a mistrust of millers often because they're kind of well off. I mean, a mill is a pretty expensive thing to set up. So, you know, there's a, a big investment kind of in the infrastructure, I guess. So you have to be kind of well off to do that. And then the miller... When people bring their corn to the mill, the miller is paid in corn. So he's taking, like we talked about earlier, he's taking a toll. He's taking a portion of your corn as payment. Probably not when you're there. So you would come to the mill, and um, you probably would have to mill around and wait a while. Because if, you know, if some, the guy before you has 100 pounds of corn, it's going to take at least a half an hour, 45 minutes to grind that. So if there are several people, you're going to wait a while. So when it's your turn, he's going to take, um, in the first two years of the colony, he took um, uh, two quarts per bushel, which is about one-sixteenth of your grain as his payment, and then it goes down to one quart per bushel after that. But he's probably not doing it when you're there. So I always think of it as, and Matt's heard this before, I think of it as like going to a restaurant, like today, and the waiter brings out the tab, and instead of you paying him, you give him the wallet, your wallet, and he takes it back to the kitchen and takes his money out and then gives you your wallet back. So you're going you're gonna to count that money. You know, you're going to be like, I think I had a couple more tens in here. Um, and I think that's part of that mistrust was that you weren't paying him directly. He was taking it kind of when you weren't looking. And your corn is also being returned to you in a different state. The, there's less air between the pieces because it's ground into little bits, so it's going to look much more diminished in volume, too. Um, but millers were known. They talk about the miller's thumb of gold. You know, um, some millers might have a little, they were no, thought to have a little side chute that would funnel off a little bit of extra corn for them. Or some, there's a wooden casing that goes around the stones, and um, they say that at the end of the day, any cornmeal that's left inside that casing is the miller's kind of bonus, the miller's ring. So some millers would make their casing, their hooper vat, extra big, so more stuff is being trapped in it. But I don't know if you've heard this, Hillary, but I was reading um, a book about perceptions of millers in England, and one example that they gave um, is that there's, I think it's in Essex, but there's a gravestone there for a miller 
the miller's last name is strange and on the headstone it says here lies an honest miller and that is strange <laughs> <laughs> so it was a really common perception what happened to um to the gristmill after the Jenny family passed it off? Or did they continue to pass it into their children and their grandchildren? Or did it become the property of the town? When John Jenny's son is finally running the mill, he's spending a lot less time here in Plymouth. Um, so it, there starts to be shares of the, the mill and the property surrounding the mill starts to be um, sold off and sent off to um, different partners that form uh, here throughout the history. We see land records change a few times um, along with building. There's also another building that's located on the, the, the mill property, if you will, um, that also changes hands a few times. Um, and then uh, it's, it sits here um, until 1840, whether it was completely operational um, until that time, it's unclear. Um, but we do know that there, you know, throughout Plymouth's history along Town Brook, there were a number of different dam sites. Um, so when there's a fire that takes down John Jenny's mill and its mill site, um, we know that they don't decide to rebuild another grain grinding mill here um, in this location on Town Brook because there's um, another grain grinding mill a little bit further down Town Brook, closer to the mouth of the harbor. Um, but along Town Brook, you'll see a number of different industries kind of change hands, but you see the grist mill go through a number of different partnerships and different um, uh, groups of individuals that uh, will run the mill. The grist mill, like the Mayflower too, is part of the original landscape that the Pilgrims and the Wampanoag inhabited. Plymouth Plantation, our Living History Museum, we're several miles away from downtown. We're uh, in a constructed landscape, but this is this is as close to the original landscape as as visitors can get. How do you incorporate landscape and resource use and management over the past 400 years and today into the story of the Plymouth Gristmill? Well, that's a great question. I mean, it's, it is the story of the Plymouth Gristmill. Um, you can't tell the story without telling that part of it. Um, we are nestled in, you know, if you look out the window from where we're sitting right now, I can almost, if there weren't a house right there, I could see... Um, a burial hill, which is the top of the settlement where their fort was, and then you've got the brook running through that valley, and behind us there's Watson's Hill. So um, we like to point those out to people to show that the gristmill was really close to the original settlement, um, and they can take a walk up to this beautiful burial hill and see where um, where the fort was. And then we talk a lot about the brook. I mean, the the brook is the reason that one of the main reasons that the Wampanoag people settled here. Um, you've got a source of water, um, but you've also got a source of power. So when the pilgrims came, that's really one of the reasons that they chose this location. The fort gives a great view of the harbor. It's not a great harbor, but it's a pretty good harbor. Um, but then you've got this great power source running right through it. Um, and what's really great about it, it's not like a super huge river. It's a brook, but it's spring-fed. Um, the lake that it runs from is fed by springs, as is the brook all the way down. So this last summer was really, really, really dry, and our water level dropped some. But we were still, we were still pretty flush with water. We had plenty to do what we needed to grind. Um, so the, you know, the, the landscape, having this energy source um, as well as a water source was just absolutely critical. Today, the Plymouth Gristmill works very closely with as we mentioned, lo lots of local farmers, um, restaurateurs, brewers, distillers, uh, and federal, state, and local environmental agencies on a number of projects. We've talked about those heirloom grains that 
is a very exciting addition to the Plymouth Gristmill story. What are some other projects that are near and dear to your heart? Well, I think the, the first one kind of that really struck me when I started uh, working here at the Plymouth Gristmill was the, um, was the, the Herring Run Festival that happens in the spring. Um, and then, then there's a number of alewife herring that come up through Town Brook. Um, but our site here has a fish ladder out back, and we can watch over 150,000 fish every year get through and come up through that fish ladder, which is an amazing experience because a lot of people see, whether it's in person or has seen on National Geographic, a salmon run where you watch fish doing these large jumps over these waterfalls. Well, these alewife herring can't leave that water column, but they need to get past our 14-foot drop of a dam and waterfall. Um, so we need to be able to get them up and through so that they can go on to their, their uh, spawning grounds up at Billington Sea, which is the headwater for our mill. Um, and we have them come up through the fish ladder, but then we also work with uh, NOAA um, to uh, count those fish here at this station. So um, as the fish come through the dam, we have volunteers that come down, and if you come visit the gristmill, we'll actually enlist you as well to help us out. And we'll start counting those fish, and we are going to see large numbers of those start to go up as the years go along, as they are protected fish here in Massachusetts. But NOAA greatly appreciates, and the town of Plymouth um, also uses that data and those statistics to see that population come back on the rise. It was in decline for quite some time, and a lot of that had to do with the industry along Town Brook. There were a number of dam sites, about five or so, um, that were along Town Brook at one point, and they all had fish ladders. Well, the mills are long gone, but those dams still sit there, and those fish ladders sit there, but they become into disrepair because no one's maintaining them. Yeah, and the, the herring are just, I mean, they're an incredible part of the story. It's not just that we happen to be sitting on a spot where the um, building a dam made it necessary to have a fish ladder built so the fish could get over the dam, but herring are a really important part of the history of um, Plymouth Colony. They were, you know, we've probably all heard the story of Squanto and how, or Tisquantum, and how he taught the pilgrims how to fertilize their corn with fish. Well, these are the fish. You know, back in the 17th century, there were probably a million of them coming up every year. You know, they talk of, the pilgrims describe it as almost looking as if there's no water in the brook because it's so clogged with fish. So not only is the mill built where the fish were, um, but these fish helped to fertilize the corn that was ground in the mill. So they were really coexisting, um, or they started to kind of coexist. At first, the pilgrims, after they built the dam, the number of herring in the annual run started to decrease. And after a little while, they figured out, like, oh, it's because we're blocking access to the spawning grounds. So in the late 17th century, they built, um, they called them a trough or a through fair, is the, the wording that comes up in the court records, but basically this kind of watery ramp to allow them to swim up over the top of the dam. So it's amazing to me that these fish ladders you know, go back that long. I know one of our community partners at Plymouth Plantation is the Plymouth Farmer's Market. Mm -hmm. um, you two are mainstays at the Plymouth Farmer's Market. What can market goers expect to purchase when they come to the booth? Well, we started out, you know, when we were brand new, we were, we were making cornmeal and we were making samp, which is, like we were saying, the, the grits, um, which, just as a side note, I just have to point out that grits were up. It's amazing to me that we had grits up here in the Northeast. We just called them <laughs> by a different name. <laughs> um, so cornmeal and grits is what you, that's what you could get at first. 
And then as we were talking about, we've just we've gradually formed partnerships with some of these farmers, and now we have um, different kinds of cornmeal and different kind of grits that you can buy. So you can buy Indian corn cornmeal and Indian corn grits or that Plymouth eight row flint corn. Um, Floriani red, sometimes when we have it, flint corn and Floriani red grits, we have some blue cornmeal and some blue grits that aren't as local, but they sure are good and beautiful. <laughs> so we have those. Um, we've started to mill rye flour and um, wheat flour. Um, and we're looking into some other grains as well. We're hoping this winter to work on making some mixes so that we'd have a pancake mix. Um, we want to do a thirded pancake mix. So in the 17th century, they were blending wheat, rye, and corn together to make a flour that wasn't as nice as wheat by itself, but it wasn't as not good as corn or rye by themselves. So they kind of blended those together. And today we still use them in Boston brown bread. So we want to make a, um, a, a thirded flour pancake mix and a cornmeal mix this winter. So hopefully they'll be hitting the shelves in the spring. I want to talk about the two of you for a minute. Um, neither of you were millers before coming to Plymouth Plantation. <laughs> um, first of all, how did you get involved in Plymouth Plantation? And then how did that interest in Plymouth Plantation evolve into an interest in grains and technology and historic trades? Who wants to go first? No, I don't. I don't know that Hillary has a long enough podcast for my story. Yeah. I could, I could, I could uh, give you the uh, notes version, sure. uh, which I think is probably what you prefer. <laughs> um, um, my history with the with the Plymouth Plantation goes back to um, uh, my grandmother uh, working here. Um, I won't say a long time ago, but a while ago, um, and then also um, my family working through the plantation. It was kind of a rite of passage. So I was here as a as a child volunteer at one point, and don't ask me to do a an, an English accent now. I can't. Um, it, it doesn't sound very good. Um, but um, then I went, you know, off to school and and off to college, and then um, lived down in the D.C. area for a while, and then moved back to Plymouth um, uh, recently. Um, and when I did that, I wanted to get back to, to working with my hands, but also getting back to something that was near and dear to my heart, and that's the, that's the Plymouth Plantation, and telling um, the, not only the Pilgrim story, but the, the story of Plymouth here. And I think you get that with, um, uh, with the gristmill, um, where you, it's not just the Pilgrim story, but you can also talk about Plymouth and uh, kind of its, its, its way through um, you know, the industrial era, if you will. Um, and it's history along Town Brook. We can talk a lot about Plymouth's um, vast history. Um, that's not just Thanksgiving. Um, and you know, as far as getting interested here, um, I, I really just wanted to get back to doing something with my hands, not sitting behind a computer for uh, you know, 18 hours a day and doing finance, I gotta be honest with you, and this was quite the change, but it has been one for the better, and um, I know it's a podcast and you can't see my head, but usually what I tell people when they ask me that is, said if I had found this job 10 years ago, I'd probably still have all the hair left on the top of my head. Um, but it, every day has been an adventure, and every day has been a, um, a learning experience, and in learning about grains, and learn, I mean, every time I think I've learned what I could about corn, there's a whole other corner to turn and learn more and then about other varieties of grains and then what people are looking for in their products um, from just even local bakers where we have had people come in and look for for sorghum I didn't even know what that was and then you know look for for other types of grains and, and products it's been fun and it's been fun to learn how to grind that type of stuff and how to maintain the mill itself how can I follow that <laughs> 
Um, I came to Plymouth Plantation fresh out of college, which was quite a while ago. Um, I majored in um, history, American history, and minored in museum studies, so I loved museums. I was always the kid that, you know, they were looking for at the... Uh, Everybody else was on the bus at the field trip at the end of the day, but I was lost somewhere in the museum, <laughs> poking around. That really did happen more than once. Um, <laughs> um, so I was looking for a living history museum because I fell in love with the concept of living history. So um, I came and started working at Plymouth Plantation as a pilgrim, which was great fun. Um, it, I really, really enjoy talking to people and um, telling people about history and getting them to understand things. So I did that for quite a while and then worked in the education department. And then about four years ago when we decided to, the plantation decided to add this um, as, as a new exhibit to the plantation core of programs, I was really intrigued by the idea. You know, I really loved the idea of living history and getting back to demonstrating and preserving, talking about these ancient technologies. Um, I'm an avid gardener, so I love the idea of um, working with a food product again, um, and um, I love the idea of not, I was like Matt, maybe I was a little bit, I, I wanted to talk to people again and not so much on the telephone. <laughs> right. I liked, I wanted to be in a public environment again. Um, so, it, and I also was super excited about the idea, or about the um, potential for starting kind of a museum from scratch, you know, figuring out what, the story that we wanted to tell and the best way of selling it and this really cool thing that we're able to do here that I feel so lucky um, we produce a food product um, and so we're demonstrating not just for the sake of demonstrating but we're making something that's really really cool a really high quality product using these ancient technologies and at the same time we can tell people all about it um, so I was really intrigued by those two things coming together, you know, not just making a cool food or not just telling people how it's done, but having them be able to see all the different parts of the process. Um, and like Matt, I've, I've, I love every day of it. I think I always tell kids, I'm like, I think I have the coolest job in the world. Want to learn more? Download all of our full-length Voices from the Past episodes, as well as podcast sound bites from iTunes or stream live on SoundCloud. For more podcast news or to catch new episodes first, join the conversation on our social media channels or visit us online at www.plymouth.org. The Plymouth Plantation Podcast is produced by Hilary Goodnow and Tom Begley with support from Plymouth Plantation Incorporated and the Museum Experience Group. Our theme music was composed by John Prevedini. Thanks for listening. <laughs>